Welcome to this first program in a new WERU series entitled Maine, The Way Life Could Be. I'm Amy Brown. And I'm Jim Campbell. We'll be the hosts for this new series. The first thing we should probably do is explain where the series title comes from. Travelers entering Maine on the Maine Turnpike from the south are greeted by a sign that says Maine the way life should be. Assuming for a moment that that's true today, we wonder what would make it true in the future. Right. There are a lot of challenges and perhaps opportunities that will affect what life is like in Maine in the not-too-distant future, the future that people listening right now will probably see in their lifetimes. We decided to take a look at some of those challenges and opportunities and get some ideas about what life could be in Maine in the future, hence the name of the program series. And of course, that brought up the question of just what are the most important challenges facing Maine now that will extend into the future? We had some ideas, but we wanted to find out what ideas others had about that question to enable us to identify topics for the programs in the series. So we asked. Regular WERU listeners may recall recently hearing an invitation on the WERU airwaves to attend a video conference call and to share their ideas about important challenges facing our state that will affect our common future, and that will help us to know what topics future programs in the series should include. More than 25 people joined that video conference, and many offered their ideas and concerns about important issues we will need to address if we want Maine to remain a place where we want to live in the future. We'll hear from some of those who shared their ideas during that video conference in a moment. Later in the program, we'll also hear from three people in our listening area who are working in local government and whose jobs it is to not only take care of today's local needs, but also to plan to deal with the needs of tomorrow. We'll get some of their ideas about what issues we will have to address going forward. The ideas that you'll hear on the program have been edited for time, but not for content. In this first segment of people who spoke on the video conference, as each new voice begins, we'll identify the speaker by name if they don't identify themselves. The first voice we'll hear is that of William Clark. I'm a retired physician. I live in Brunswick. I was graduated from medical school in 1965 when Medicare was passed. I was already interested in public health and understanding that Medicare was a great advance for this country. And I was quite certain that fairly soon, we would have it for everybody. I've been disappointed, and I've been working on it ever since, and I've been interested in finding ways to get healthcare to more people, now especially in Maine. I'm part of Maine Healthcare Action, which is a citizen-led group that's attempting to get our resolve, calling for the legislature to develop legislation that would cover every Maine resident with comprehensive health care. We're working on gathering signatures at this time and looking to get on the ballot in 2023. We're already about two thirds of the way in terms of the number of signatures. I, I guess I'll just end by, and here I'm quoting from somebody else. We are told repeatedly that private insurance is the path to healthcare efficiency and clinical effectiveness. Yet, our health system performance is by far the worst in the wealthy world, the most expensive with tenuous access to care, low life expectancy, and a unique American treat, massive medical debt. We can fix this. Our legislature can do it. Studies show that covering everybody lowers costs for at least 
probably close to 90% of people. And everybody's covered. Hospitals get paid. There's no charity care, et cetera, et cetera. So I'll, I'll stop my comments and diatribe there. Steve Wessler. Thank you. When I think about what is most important to focus on, it's the same issue that bothered me as a, as a young child watching CBS with Walter Cronkite and seeing the civil rights movement unfold. Anti-Black racism, anti-Hispanic racism, sexism, anti-LGBTQ bias, anti-Muslim bias, anti-immigrant bias, anti-Semitic bias are huge. The top of that for me would be anti-racial racist bias. I've been working on those issues. First, as the person who developed and then ran the Civil Rights Union in the Attorney General's office, uh, then creating a nonprofit in, in Portland, trying to deal with hate crimes. And then more recently, a much broader range of issues, not just in Maine, but in the U.S. and out of the U.S. It's not going away. While there are certainly things that uh, we should all feel proud about, the level of racism is huge, as well as the other forms of bias. That bias diminishes its targets, keeps people in poverty. It makes people scared all the time. None of that should happen. This is not a particularly main issue, but I continue to do focus groups at schools in Maine. Uh, the level of degrading, really disturbing, degrading language, all of those categories I've mentioned is still there. I'm not saying it's the most important issue. It's just that for me, it's the most important issue. Anna Viertel. Hi, sorry. I actually had just put my name in the chat because I was introducing myself. I didn't realize it was a request to speak, but <laughs> I'm the coordinator for community response at Next Step Domestic Violence Project in um, Ellsworth and Machias. We cover Hancock and Washington counties. And I know that you guys do a wonderful job of covering domestic violence as an issue from a couple of different angles. You already have a lot of programming that does that. As a coordinator for community response, what I think about is when I think of the word should, like how life should be, I think about how we would want the community re to respond, providing services for survivors and victims with all the information about what survivors and victims really need improving coordination and collaboration with other systems that survivors have to commonly interact with in sort of thinking about how to reduce the unintended consequences or potential harm that can come from those things and thinking about how to increase safety for everybody in any sort of human community-sized unit, whether it's a couple or a family or an island or a town or a county. How can we work together to make sure that we're both addressing the social change issue of shifting the underlying beliefs that make domestic violence possible and also making sure that the services that people are receiving are the most effective and sort of informed as they can possibly be. And instead of working in these sort of siloed ways, working together to make sure that everybody's getting what they need and that we're working on prevention and we're working on it from all angles because everybody is part of our main communities, both 
people who are victims and survivors of domestic violence, people who choose to use violence and abuse in their relationships. We want everybody to get wraparound services so that we can kind of address this all together. That's what I think about more than we need more programming, highlight that this is an issue in our state. I think you guys are already doing a wonderful job of that. I wonder if there's an opportunity to connect in talking about what can the community do to make sure that we're not accidentally colluding or sort of perpetuating this shared culture. And then specifically what can systems do to make sure we're giving survivors what they need. Patricia Rupert Nation. Hi, and thank you for the opportunity to speak this evening. Um, my name is Trisha. I live in Fort Kent and I am the mother to two young children. And I think really the most pressing problem facing both Maine and the world is climate change. I am deeply worried about my children's future. I've certainly already seen and felt the impacts of climate change in my life, even, even now. Kind of the most superficial, but still deeply felt losses is before I moved to Maine, I lived in Wisconsin, in Southern Wisconsin, similar climate to, to Southern Maine, um, as opposed to where I live now. And when I moved there in the early aughts, I could ski regularly uh, in the area. And over the course of about 10 years, it went from consistent snowpack to consistently fluctuating between snow and rain all winter and rarely being able to ski. Now I've moved all the way up to Fort Kent where we had 12 feet of snow my first winter, but we've had rain and above freezing temperatures in the last couple of weeks in January in Fort Kent. We're certainly a long way from losing our snowpack up here, but you know what? Frankly, I see it coming. It's the exact same pattern that I saw in, in Wisconsin. Like I said, that's kind of the least of the threats of climate change. Even like the impacts of the fossil fuels that we're burning directly, they kill like 350,000 people every year in the United States. It's like on the same right order of deaths as COVID has caused every year, year after year. We are at the edge of being able to stay below 1.5 degrees. Like if we do everything we possibly can right now, we can maybe limit warming to 1.5 degrees, maybe. If we don't, we're going to blow right past that. And the difference between even 1.5 and 2 is most of the coral reefs in the world being gone and all of the coral reefs being gone. It's the risk of catastrophic tipping point where ice sheets collapse and you have much higher sea level rise than is already projected. Sea level is rise definitely something that impacts Maine and has consistently been tracking higher than the projections. The low end projection would be maybe a foot and a half here in Maine by the end of the century. If we don't control warming, we could see eight, 10 feet by the end of the century. What disappears along the coast of Maine with that kind of sea level rise? I mean, the Maine Won't Wait mentioned almost half of beaches, for one thing, all the tourism dollars that come with that. So that fires, dollars, agriculture, like just stability in our way of life. That's, that's what's on the mind, line in my mind. Thank you. I'm Lisa Savage. I'm from Solon. 
I originally was going to speak about Maine Healthcare Action and the need for universal health care, uh, which is uh, clearly urgent and on many people's minds. But Bill Clark did such a good idea of that that I, I would like to follow on to the last speaker and say that I think environmental degradation of, of all sorts is probably the most serious problem facing us. I co-founded an organization called Maine Natural Guard that helps people connect the fact that the U.S. military is the biggest contributor to global warming as of an organization on the planet, and that we could all do everything we could possibly do, and it would still be a driving climate crisis if, if we can't rein that in. However, for the state of Maine specifically and the way life should be, I think it's clear to me that tribal sovereignty would be an enormous step forward for Maine as an entity here in the Wabanaki land, respecting the wisdom of the indigenous people that know how to live sustainably here. In addition to climate crisis, we're seeing, you know, uh, so much pollution coming into Maine, the rivers, landfills, leaching, um, now you can't eat the deer, you can't eat the rainbow trout. Tribal sovereignty is not only the right thing to do, but really it's our best hope for survival. I think we're so fortunate to have the wisdom here if we could turn the state toward listening and really letting Indigenous people lead, which is the path forward, I think, out of this environmental chaos that capitalism and its you know degradations have brought upon the earth. So uh, thank you for listening. And thank you for having this conversation, Amy. R.W. Estella. Since 1991, I've been fortunate to be a part of WERU and, and have been doing a word in Edgewise. That came on the heels of, of getting a, a family grown and, and off onto their next uh, paths in life. When I, when I first arrived in Maine in, in 1977, I met lots of small-scale entrepreneurs, many of whom I became acquainted with early on in my efforts to keep that young family of four housed and, and fed and clothed and growing up in Maine in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I think right on the heels of some of the things we've heard already, especially climate change and healthcare and when I think of, of what is the most important issue in Maine in your lifetime, if I break that down and unpack that, I think about that all-important word there at the middle, Maine, and I, I think of a place that is unique for a lot of things that have been part of its makeup for a long time, and I see those things disappearing little by little and becoming diluted and, and thinned out. And a lot of it has to do with the main work ethic. Not that that work ethic is, is diminishing, but that the uh, number of choices that people have, the, the diversity of livelihood of folks in Maine, that business of many entrepreneurs that, that I don't see as many of as in, on a small scale that I, that I used to, that sort of integral relation to the self-reliance and, and the self-sufficiency of Maine, that is, I think, one of the things that, that I'm most concerned about as we move into the future. I think about part of my own heritage, my one-quarter Basque heritage. And the Basques are a, a pretty dynamic people. 
And despite Spain trying to swallow them up, they have managed to uh, spread their wings far and wide. Uh, Iberdrola is a Basque company. It's based in Bilbao. So that anybody in the southern part of the state is actually getting Basque-related power. And the Basques have done a, a lot of inventive things over the years. And I think that uh, Maine and its people are capable of doing the same thing and maintaining that identity and the quality of life, which is something that, that we think about with the Maine as it should be, Maine as it could be, Maine as it would be. What are we going to do for jobs in the future? What are we going to do to encourage the homegrownness of the people who, who treasure the many beautiful aspects of this state? How are we going to get that together? Without it, we're just going to turn into someplace else with a seacoast. Maria Gerard? Yes. Hi. Hi, everyone. I'm happy to be here in community with you all tonight. And this is such a wonderful opportunity. And I'm going with the first thing that came to my head without even thinking. So that question, what, what do I think is the most important issue uh, facing major in my lifetime? I have this historian lens. So I tend to look at history quite a bit. But I would say the disregard for the natural world and our relationship with it. When I use my history lens, I think about, you know, since the beginning of statehood and even prior, you know, this territory has been a resource extraction state right from the beginning. And, you know, a direct outcome of colonialism, you know, it went from beaver fur to fish to lumber and the lumbering that befouled and dammed the rivers. And we need to understand that what befalls the natural world will eventually befall us as well. And so just in my lifetime, I have witnessed battles over um, water rights between the Penobscot tribe and the state. And I am a member of the Penobscot tribe you know, the threat of the East-West Industrial Corridor and Pipeline, the, the CMP Corridor, the growing mega dump, the state-owned Juniper Ridge Landfill, which is situated in the Penobscot River watershed, you know, importing tons and tons of out-of-state waste into our state. Mining, um, as it was already mentioned, the chemicals now that are showing up in the deer and in the fish, as a member of the Penobscot tribe, I take a lot of comfort in um, traditional knowledge and traditional stories. And I remember one time I was I was speaking in Ellsworth and this woman came up to me afterwards uh, as I was talking about some of these environmental issues and tribal state relations. And this woman came up to me afterwards and she said, it must be so hard to not despair. And, um, you know, she looked like she was gonna cry. I said, you know, not really, because our traditional stories told us that we were going to be here at this point in time eventually. And you can see this in uh, what's called the seven fires prophecies that talks about different eras or epics throughout history. And the seventh fire is um, described as a time when the the water runs bitter with disrespect and the fish are befouled and dying and you know all these horrible things are happening and 
we've arrived there now, but what comes next is an opportunity to make a choice. And so we can either um, come to the realization that we've really been messing up for a long time and find ways to fix that and work together, or that's it. That's the end of the fires. And we're at a crossroads where we have to make uh, important decisions. And part of that is understanding where each other is coming from. It's already been mentioned about recognizing the original stewards of this land as having knowledge that can correct some of this situation and be a solution. And so a lot of times when tribal state relations are occurring um, and struggles and battles are cropping up, we currently have the ongoing river battle with the state of Maine. You know, people need to realize that it's not just a fight between the tribes and the state. This is a fight for the tribes to remain the original stewards of this land and to protect this um, territory that we've called home for hundreds of thousands of years. Well, tens of thousands of years, I exaggerate. Thank you very much for hearing me. I appreciate it. Jeffrey Hotchkiss. So first, I got in line deliberately behind Maria because I wanted to make sure I fully wholeheartedly endorsed whatever she said. You know, full disclosure, I I work uh, behind the scenes on Dawnland Signal Show as well. So, so and echoing what Lisa said about respecting indigenous uh, sovereignty is a key issue in Maine that goes beyond just the obvious. And so what I really wanted to talk about is the uh, the history of peacemakers in Maine. I'm learning more about the indigenous peacemakers, uh, some of the very uh, notable ones who negotiated treaties with the settlers. During my lifetime, such people as uh, George Mitchell, Samantha Smith, supported by Joni Benoit Samuelson, and by a woman named Suzanne Massey. I really want to get in front of these folks and to your audience the importance of just remembering and honoring the peacemakers and the peacemaking tradition in Maine, of which the current manifestation is the uh, really the resurgence in awareness of the importance of indigenous sovereignty of Wabanaki sovereignty. If you haven't heard of Suzanne Massey, she was critical to the 1980s turnabout where we went from belligerent rhetoric and actions toward the Soviet Union to uh, negotiating dramatic reductions in uh, nuclear arsenals. That's a global danger today that I think is severely underestimated by uh, both America, the American public and uh, U.S. leaders in Washington of both parties. And a way, one key way for Mainers to contribute to reducing the danger of global thermonuclear war is to remember those people who contributed in the past to stepping back from the brink. Really, the, the theme that I want to convey is honor the peacemakers, and uh, thank you for listening. My name is Lane Sturdivant, and I live in Warren in the Midcoast. Uh, I wasn't sure if I was going to speak because I wasn't sure which of the many sort of challenges or issues to to choose from. Um, And I almost was going to talk about climate change, but someone already has, though I definitely think that that is an enormous issue that is facing Maine and the nation. I, I decided to speak to something a little bit more particular to Maine, although it is a national crisis. That is affordable housing. 
I'm a young person who came to Maine for college and I, I managed to stick around, but I have a lot of peers um, who have left Maine over the years for different reasons, um, often to uh, go to grad school or pursue a career that they can't find in Maine or a higher paying job that they can't find in Maine. But one of the pressures that people are facing in Maine in particular is affordable housing. And some people are, I think, leaving Maine or being pushed out of Maine because of that, especially young families. I think it's incredibly hard and increasingly hard to find rental units to accommodate families these days. I live in the Midcoast and we're just seeing such a crisis here of uh, a shortage of long-term rentals. So every rental is an Airbnb. <laughs> um, and during the pandemic, it kind of got worse because a lot of houses went for sale and were bought by families, which is great. But those are families moving into the area and the houses might have been rentals beforehand. So the landlord decided to sell to make money because of the pandemic um, housing prices and then kicked the tenants out for this, these new folks who could afford to purchase a home, you know, pay the mortgage and outcompete the other um, bidders. And so then um, the lower income tenants are being pushed out of the communities. You know, I live in Warren in part because I'm finding it hard to find rentals. You know, I probably would desire to live in Rockland, but it's not affordable anymore, even though it was maybe five years ago. So I think it's a huge um, issue and I think it's gonna impact us in the long term if we don't address it because I think young people aren't gonna stick around in Maine if they can't find affordable housing, especially young people who do jobs like nursing or home care. And so as we have an increasingly elderly population, if there isn't enough housing for the workforce to take care of people as they age, it's gonna become a, a crisis in Maine, not just of housing, but of home care, which is already a crisis, um, and other forms of health care um, and care for people who are aging. And I think that it's especially acute on the coast. You know, a lot of folks want to retire to these uh, nice coastal communities, and I get it. I love living in the mid-coast, but it's also sometimes pushing working people out. Someone who's retiring and they have the benefit of maybe having had a long career um, and had money to save up. Whereas young people maybe are coming in with student debt um, and they're renters and they just can't find things. So I think that the housing crisis in Maine is an incredible issue. And I am curious to see how the state confronts it in the next few years. I know there's some policy discussion about sort of superseding local ordinances to make it easier to have like above garage rental units. Um, I wanted to do that with my aunt. We wanted to buy a house together and I would live above like the garage or the barn and we would convert it. Um, but we found that a lot of towns wouldn't have allowed us to do that because of different ordinances. You have to have so many acres or, you know, whatever. Um, so that sort of um, put a wrench in our plans in that way. Um, so I'm excited to see some of these kind of maybe multifamily or multi-generational options. Um, but I think that more needs to be done systemically than just that. So yeah, I'm curious to see how Maine addresses it, but I think housing is a huge issue in Maine right now. Thank you. Our last speaker wasn't the only one who had deep concerns about affordable housing in Maine and the implications that a lack of affordable housing will have on our future on this debut edition of Maine, The Way Life Could Be here on WERUFM. 
By the way, this program and all of the programs in the series will be placed in the public affairs archives at weru.org if you would like to re-listen to any of the programs or tell others about them. Which, of course, we hope you will. As we mentioned at the beginning of today's program, in addition to the folks who joined in the video conference call, we also spoke with some local town government officials whose jobs include not only fixing the roads and managing budgets and dealing with all the other responsibilities of today, but also include looking forward to the needs of their towns in the future. And one of the things that they had a lot to say about, just as our last speaker from the video conference did, was the challenge of finding or creating affordable housing in Maine, both today and tomorrow. Another very big issue for these planners, as it was for many of those on the video conference call, is climate change. It became clear to us that it is such a big issue that we'll be devoting an entire program to the topic. In fact, the next program in the series. We saved most of the planners' climate change comments for that program, which will air March 1st at 4 p.m. Right now, let's listen as the planners introduce themselves and talk about issues that they feel will have to be addressed effectively in our not-too-distant future. I'm Ann Krieg. I'm the planning officer for the city of Bangor. I've been here uh, two and a half years. I've also worked in other communities, Bridgeton, Bar Harbor, and I also worked down in Massachusetts. You know, a lot of my job is is working with permitting and zoning, but I also am working on um, an updated comprehensive plan. uh, And I also work on special projects with the city council. And recently the city council established four goals Uh, that they want to accomplish over the next year and a half. And one is homelessness. The other is affordable housing. The third one is economic development. We just did an economic development strategy document. And the last one is the ARPA funding. I'll go next. My name's Kathleen Billings, and I've been working for the town of Stonington over 20 years now, the last 15 years of it as a town manager. I had, uh, you know, worked previously, you know, after going to college and stuff, doing some, you know, bookkeeping jobs and various construction entities and stuff. My family's got a long background, you know, working uh, for town governments, either selectmen or code officers. So I was familiar with a lot of it. And then I got the job as town clerk. And then, as uh, I said, moved into the town manager's in 2007. And uh, I've been, you know, heavily involved with, you know, helping the town and my uh, board of selectmen, you know, get their first approved comprehensive plan, you know, based on feedback from our community about what issues were important to them, you know, certainly affordable housing, connectivity, broadband and items, climate change, such as that. And, uh, been working hard to try to implement some of those things and policy. So I'm Jim Fisher. I'm uh, the Deer Isle Town Manager. I've been here for three years. I have a somewhat checkered work history, I guess. I I, uh, have a master's degree and a doctorate in planning, and uh, I've worked overseas quite a bit in in, uh, Asia, Africa, South America. But uh, probably the longest single job I had was a senior planner with Hancock County Planning Commission, where I was 17 years. And I've always been a planner. And even as a town manager, I guess we call ourselves planagers because we're we're trying to deal with the urgent day to day requests that people have that, you know, the, the potholes and the 
and the dead animals in the road and the you know, just uh, personal crises that people have in a town, but always trying to keep a vision for where we need to go because we are confronting some very important, very uh, almost devastating long-term implications of climate change and, and uh, population and economic change that we really have to, to consider even as we're dealing with these day-to-day -day emergencies. I, I want to just mention to listeners that you'll hear a little bit of background noise. All three of these folks are in their offices, just taking a few minutes out of their busy work days to talk with us, but the offices are still open. So if you hear any background noise, that's what that's about. One of the things that all of you have mentioned in one way or another is perhaps best put under the title of workforce, whether it's affordable housing affecting whether there are people to do a job. As, as Jim pointed out, a lot of people are moving into Maine and a lot of those people are at the elderly edge of the age range, I would say, or getting very close to it. And we're, we're certainly not seeing even a replacement level in the birth rate in the country right at the moment because of COVID, but, but in the state as well. And so are you trying to figure out how there are going to be people in, say, 20 years or whatever framework you're looking at, how there are going to be people that are going to be able to do whatever kind of jobs are available. Well, yes, I, I think probably more in Bangor than, than Deer Isle, but we have a workforce housing initiative trying to build some housing that's, uh, you know, affordable for people who are in the workforce. I think if we could come up with a supply of housing, there's certainly people who would like to live here and fill those jobs. You're correct, though, that the migration into Deer Isle is, I wouldn't say elderly. We're getting a lot of working age people, but they've had their children. They're not going to have more. And our school enrollments have, it's twisted up with COVID. So we don't really know what's going to happen with school enrollment when COVID is finally resolved. But School enrollments have been stable or declining slowly, and that's certainly a concern for the long range. I do think there is going to be, even though right now those the numbers may seem low, my prediction is that we will see climate migration, people coming from other states where water resources are scarce, you know, whatever reason from climate change that brings them north. I do think we're going to see that over the next decade. Anecdotally, we you know, a lot of new people that are moving to Bangor are coming from those very states. So we're probably going to see more of that. I mean, for Bangor, our, our housing issues are, you know, quantity and as well as quality. We're looking at definitely affordable rents as an issue. I think they're still compared to the coast that our house sales are definitely lower than coastal communities. But they're going up every day. I mean, literally every day. We have houses that come on the market. Anything that comes on the market for less than 200000 is gone in hours. So nothing stays able to be rented or sold very long. So I think for us, our housing crisis that we're going through right now is just that affordability. And we also have a homelessness issue as well that we're working on to try to, you know, that really came out from the pandemic, that really kind of came to light, not having places to go during the day, 
having to create more beds at night to separate people that really brought the homelessness issue to light in Bangor. So that's why it's a it's a top priority for the city right now. I'd have to say that I'm really concerned. Probably I hear more than maybe other people because a lot of the retail businesses are down in Stonington on this end of the island. So with the various restaurants, grocery stores, shipyard and stuff like that, I mean, I hear more of, geez, you know, I'm looking for workers. That same thing is being said. It's like, well, I can't afford to find any rents or houses. And, you know, Anne is right. I mean, the the houses here in the coastal communities are going for huge money, way more than the average family can even possibly. So that challenge for these people that we desperately need to keep our coastal towns vital, whether it's people in the trades, the plumbers, the electricians, and uh, teachers, healthcare workers and stuff. I mean, it's a huge issue. And also too, you know, Jim had mentioned before about the demographics. We have a lot of people that's retiring and we don't have enough young people to replace these people in it. I've suffered it myself, trying to find people to plow snow that's got the proper licenses and the number of people that we need. I can't find replacements in my own office for various occupations. So I know firsthand just how bad it is. We're, you know, certainly trying to tackle the affordable housing. We're setting up a task force for looking at the short-term Airbnb issue. I mean, that's been huge down here. I get the complexities of it and stuff, but I'm hoping to have a balanced stakeholder group and have them make some recommendations to our select board. You know, what is it that they think they want to see or what they don't want to see and uh, see what we can tackle from there. Because, you know, when you look at Stonington and you look at it in the wintertime, the saddest part of it is most all of the houses, the water is shut off and they're all closed up. So when you say, well, you know, housing stock and all the rest of it that you have, we got plenty of housing stock, but it's just not affordable for the people who work here. There isn't even a school bus that stops downtown hardly now, lets off kids anymore. This is a problem that's been around a while. I think COVID's actually made it more difficult because it accelerated the number of people who were fleeing from epicenters and bought houses. Now they're here. Some of them may go back, but it happened faster than I expected. And But I know even 15 years ago, we were looking at the problem of healthcare providers, the nurses, certified nursing assistants, and other med techs not being able to live near medical centers because cost of living tends to be pretty high near medical centers. And so it was. it's always been this, how do you build affordable housing in unaffordable places? I, I don't have a good example in my pocket. I don't know if Anne or Kathleen does. Well, I think having the nonprofit housing development companies like, you know, uh, Community Housing in Maine and Panquist and many others that are out there, I think are a huge help because the private market, there's if construction costs are whatever they, they are, land costs or whatever they are, I mean, in order for them to have that return, then they've got to charge whatever they've got to charge. And the value of a nonprofit development corporation is you know they they don't have to meet those requirements they can get subsidies and and grants you know to bring down their costs so that they in turn can bring down their rents and i and i do think we're pretty close to 
affordability and we're st and that's still not enough. I mean, we have a significant number of people in frontline positions uh, that again, we saw how important those people are during this pandemic and what a crucial part of our economy they are. And we don't have enough units for them to rent to be able to live in Bangor. So it's, a, it's different than on the coast because we don't have the level of second homeowners and visitation that the coast has, but clearly have the similar situation of housing our frontline workers adequately. There's a lot of resistance here to the nonprofit approach, which I, I think has a lot of viability, but it takes property and houses off the tax rolls. And uh, a conservative select boards hate to see land trusts and other nonprofits remove taxable property because the tax base for us is property tax. That's about all we have. I think something that was interesting yesterday as I participated in May Municipal, they had a uh, webinar about the the housing um, things and some of the programs that uh, you know are out there. But the only frustration that I see out of it is is you know one of the slides said that there was twenty five thousand people waiting for housing. You know, and then my mind is I look at, well, geez, okay, there's 25,000. Who are they? What skill levels and stuff like that do you have? But the only thing is with the people who are struggling here and with the federal monies, I mean, whoever's on the wait list first gets to get the housing. But how does that help me keep people who are already employed here and getting priced out of the market? kept here and a lot of them are families and they've been around here this is our heritage and stuff and we're finding it tougher and tougher to stay here with some of those federal guidelines i mean i certainly understand them you know discrimination and everything else but it doesn't help that i see keep people here who want to stay here and invested and keep a good community going that's an interesting question so that in communities where a family, for example, may have been living for several generations, the question is, why did they have to leave? Are they leaving because taxes have become an issue that, that makes it difficult for them to maintain the property that they have? Or is it more that people are saying, well, what the heck, I can get five times what this was worth when we started here, I might as well go to Florida. I'm wondering what you what the experience is with people being, quote unquote, priced out of the market. Is that because the tax burdens have gotten to be untenable for them? Or is it because they've had to take second mortgages and are, are now having problems paying them? What is the dynamic that is causing people who have been in an area, whose families have been in an area for a long time to feel like they, they can't stay? And let me add on top of that, as part of that, the whole rental issue, you know, where somebody's kid gets out of high school and goes to work in town and they can't afford an apartment because the apartments are now all short-term rentals or been sold. I, th I think probably Kathleen mentioned, and it, it really is important in the coastal towns, is the effect of technological change on markets. And in this case, it's the use of the internet for booking short-term rentals, the VRBOs, Airbnbs. 
we have hundreds of units of houses that maybe were um, auxiliary apartments or whole houses that have been purchased by sometimes local people for short-term rental. And they can make more money in a few months in the summer than they would make all year round renting to somebody who's going to work here. And so we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot in some to some degree. People are buying these properties. It allows them to stay because they're generating income by renting it, but it takes it off the market for workforce. And, and, and there's no way, you know, when, when it's thousands of dollars a week that somebody local is going to be able to afford that. And we have some people who are adaptable enough that they stay in those houses in the winter, they get a, a more affordable winter season rent, and then they live in tents or they bum around, sleep on couches, they find other solutions during that peak summer month. But for the most part, the owners of those buildings board them up in the winter. It's just easier. They don't have to insulate, they don't have to heat, they don't have to worry about those problems. But it takes a lot of housing off the market that used to be there. I think also too, I mean, there's a little bit of there's some issues as far as like how to budget your money properly sometimes and understand where you have to put your resources. I think other items like, you know, people who don't have health care and costs with that, you know, there's sort of like this in-between place that a lot of people seem to fall sometimes. So dealing with all of those things like in life issues, trying to get a kid to college and stuff like that. There's a house up the road from me. I mean, it probably was going to be or was like a three-bedroom home for a family or whatever it is. But, you know, there's a $450,000 price tag on it. And many of them now are way over $300,000. People who want to buy a home or raise their family, they're just not able to get into homes like that. And then it ends up being apartments. I'm not saying anything against it, but, you know, where do you put your roots down? Where do you put your equity in and stuff like that? So it is, it's a huge problem for people around here. And I think also an answer to your question about what pushes people out. I mean, when you're three-bedroom Cape is suddenly valued at $600,000. That is a big property tax bill to pay for people. And and so going back to that frontline worker that has lived and worked in a, in a small town like Stonington, they can't do that. They can't pay that. And I think the other thing that's happening too is because of the migration from other major metropolitan areas up here, you know, a half a million dollars for a nice, decent three-bedroom cape to somebody from Connecticut is a bargain. Where somebody here in Maine, that's totally untenable with the job market and everything else. So I think that there's that competition. And that's been going on for a long time. I mean, we, my family and I moved to Maine from Massachusetts in 2002, and we were saying that then. But we were saying $300,000 was a bargain. And now we're saying, you know, twice that, 20 years later. I would say, I wouldn't, I don't know in everybody's experience, but taxes are not necessarily going up with property values. We just did our first revaluation in 39 years. It may be a record in Maine. It's not one I'm proud of, but in in the process, the, the assessed value of properties almost tripled. But we didn't need any more money for that. So the tax rate was about a third of what it was. And for a lot of people, taxes stayed the same. They went down, some went up, you know, because of market forces putting a higher value on certain vacant coastal properties, things like that. 
there there may be a a longer term effect when you have a population move in from other states that their expectations for services may go up and that may drive up costs. But at least my experience in Deer Isle is people come here, they don't come here for the services. <laughs> and right. the, the most expensive thing we do is education by far. And that is one area where people's expectations are high and should be. Well, and I was going to mention about the education part of it, because I understand both ways. When I participated, uh, along with a lot of other people, a few years ago in the future of our schools, because the school budget is really high, there's declining enrollments, the buildings were starting to need a lot of work and stuff, and deferred maintenance was a big part of that. And the discussion was, well, do we still keep the high school or... Do we put them in one building? Do we send them across the reach to the other schools? And ultimately, the report and, you know, everyone decided to keep them here. But that gets to be, you know, a struggle. But also, too, if it wasn't for the summer people and the amount of taxes that they pay, that school would have been folded up and done a long time ago. And we all recognize that. I guess, you know, is how do we balance some of this out so we're all helping each other and get into a place that we can all live and work and enjoy? And um, But the only thing is, is I think with the COVID and then all of a sudden the, the uh, population decline and trying to grab people to work as drove wages up and the cost of things. So I don't know, it's, it's made a strange dynamic and not easy to figure out how, which one do you tackle first? <laughs> We've talked about climate change. We've talked about affordable housing. We've talked about the effect of people moving in, at least during COVID times and probably other times. And uh, we're postulating that perhaps the changing climate is going to drive more people here. We've heard about these issues. And I'm wondering, are there other issues as you look forward in your roles as trying to plan for the future in your areas? Are there other items that you think are really high on the agenda for you? For a little town like Deer Isle, one of the big cost items after schools, which you know, two thirds of everything, but that is solid waste. And, you know, we've, we've had a terrible time maintaining any kind of credibility and recycling. And this contributes to climate change in a bunch of ways. And it certainly contributes to microplastics in the oceans, which contribute to the decline of fisheries. It's, a, it's, it's connected and, and um, recycling in Maine, it's been so difficult and so expensive that, you know, that's an issue we really need to tackle. We've got, we're looking at that regionally as well. We have a, a kind of peninsula area league of towns, which are the select board leaders and town managers for our region, trying to meet at least quarterly to touch base on this. But I don't see each town solving a problem like recycling. It's going to take a bigger entity. We had a group called uh, Fiberite, which promised a lot. And, and the technology was impressive, but it, the cost models didn't work and they closed. And so we were incinerating everything right now. And I don't think that's a, a smart move, but it seems to be one of those long-term structural changes that each individual town can't really do on its own. I saw you shaking your head in. Yeah, I, I hadn't. I sort of hadn't thought of that um, until he said it, but yeah, that is a huge issue. 
I would add for Bangor that I hadn't talked about was our, you know, transportation, looking at increasing, you know, we do have a bus system, you know, increasing that to reduce our car trips. If you've tried to drive through Bangor, we actually do have traffic. So, you know, just to try to increase bus and, and bicycle. I think also for me, you know, one of Stonington's biggest challenges or the island is going to be the fate of the lobster industry with the NOAA's regulations for getting lines out of the water in 10 years and different areas being closed down and uh, dealing with the gear issue and stuff. I mean, there's been some really abrupt closures for them for different seasons when they can fish and stuff. It's going to create a, a huge economic loss for our communities and the offshore wind also too you know the uncertainties where these guys can fish and where they can't and bait supply so you know that's going to have profound issues on our coastal communities as well because the lobster industry is well over a billion dollars to Maine and all the jobs so that's not going to be easy to change or mitigate or recover from you know and I'll I'll throw in another one we're only seeing a little problems with this now, but it, it'll be bigger, and that's invasive species. Yeah, we've got green crabs. I just submitted a grant proposal to work with clamors to try to deal with this and you know surge in population of green crabs and clamming after lobstering is our second biggest fishery. We've got some elvers too, which are very valuable, but very short time frame. Yeah, we've got brown tail moth, which is making some areas pretty uninhabitable uh, during the early summer when, you know, you got a terrible infection from those. And we have, uh, you know, the risk of other kinds of seaweed and plant life that comes in that smells terrible, things that could really decimate the popularity of public water areas. And so these invasives are connected with climate change, but this, it's a hard thing to deal with. Yeah, I mean, the plant map has already changed. We're a different plant zone now. What we considered invasive is actually True. becoming native because of climate change. Okay, any other thoughts as you look to the future, either with your planar hats or just with your citizen hats that you think are going to require some real good thinking and some real good action to make Maine the kind of place that we would like it to be in, let's just say, as long as we live? Well, I, we've touched on transportation. I think we probably hit most of the points, but we have to electrify. We have to, I, I know it's not a complete solution, but we have to go there. We, we don't have level three charging stations anywhere in Hancock County. We're putting in level two now, which are good if you've got three, four hours to charge your car. But we've got to we've got to ramp that up quickly. To, and and I suppose you know I've always been a great advocate of transit. It's tough in rural areas, but we need to come up with this mix of transportation solutions, not just for tourism, but also for our aging population. So fixed route transportation, volunteer drivers, uh, subsidies to family and friends, anything we can come up with so that people can age in place in our communities. Anyone I else would, want to weigh in, Anne? Yeah, I would add that looking at our agricultural lands, you know, for more local food production, I think that's something that is really going to come into play over the next decade of, uh, you know, we saw distribution issues during this pandemic that's probably, you know, gonna happen again or continue to happen. So, you know, we need to look at, at our, 
you know, as we do our comprehensive plans and we look at our agricultural soils to look at that and say, you know, we need to start planning for more farms. I think a final thing for me is the the human resource aspect of some of these. You know, one thing that I really would like to see is there's more young people to come into the public service part of it. And there's so many older ones and we have a lot to offer, but I really would like to see some younger people learn the stuff, run for office, be on various boards and committees, understand how some of the stuff works. This is going to be their future. And I wish, you know, maybe there was more with schools to, with the civics to help them understand that, you know, their voices can be heard and how that is done. And I'm afraid that some of that disconnect that we've seen, maybe that's what's made some of the divisiveness that's out of this in this country. And I would really like to see younger people step up and and come into some of these roles and understand that they can make changes. And I hope that happens. I think that's a great note uh, to end on for me, at least. I think that's that's something we're all needing to look at is how to readjust education to keep people engaged and thinking about not just, I'd love to see public service, but also entrepreneurship. See, see young people come up with new ideas that will work in, in this new environment we're in. So those were town managers, town planners from some local towns, Bangor, Deer Isle, Stonington. We did try to get somebody from Western Waldo County, and unfortunately, we weren't able to get them. We'll keep trying for future editions of Maine the way life could be. We also contacted someone at the Penobscot Nation, and they don't have a official planning department, so to speak, right now. So that didn't work out for this program either. But it was great hearing from the three folks that we did hear from and from all of the people who attended the video conference. What did you think, Jim? I certainly think there's plenty of ideas. And as you mentioned before, one that really rose to the top was climate change. So that'll be the topic of our next program in the series on the first Tuesday of March at 4 p.m. Right. And we're thinking we'll probably do at least six of these. We have at the main weru.org right there on the main page. If you go there, there's a article right at the top about this series and a link that you can click on. You can record a comment there if you have something you would like to say about climate change and we may use it on an upcoming program. So include your name in your town if you want that included. And there's also right there is our email address, which is just basically the way life could be at weru.org and you can send comments to us either about what you think are the biggest issues facing Maine in your lifetime or about the specific show topics that we're going to be doing from month to month. So that's it for today's program and we'd like to thank Ann Luther and Matt Murphy for helping us develop the topic content for the series. And we also want to thank folks who helped us with the video conference including Scott Bird, Pippin Middlehauser, and Matt Murphy working behind the scenes on that as well. Thanks for the support from the Maine Arts Commission for this series. Thanks for listening.